This is the second step or the second stage of the podcast on handling casework for the union. The second stage that we talked about developing was to look at the uh, period between when you first meet the member and when you next meet the member. So this is the work that you'll be putting in as a representative, as a, an advocate, if you like, for the member in between those, uh, between those stages. Quite a lot of that will be, will be um, straightforward, but time-consuming. I always feel that if you put 90% of your time into the front end of a case before you ever meet the management, then that will be very productive for the 10% that you, of your time that you do actually spend in front, in front of the employer and with the member. So this is a lot of sometimes quite monotonous work, but very, very important work. So it's where you start to strategically take the case uh, to pieces. You check in all of the aspects of the case. All the stuff that the member has brought to you needs to be second checked. You need to make sure that it's accurate. You need to make sure that there's nothing else that you need. Sometimes this might mean uh, going to the employer at this stage and seeing if they've had any other letters, especially if something strikes out that you've got a letter referring to a meeting or another letter, then you need to see that relevant evidence. It may not always be have been given to the member. It probably should have been, but it may not have been. So you might need to get that at that point in time. One of the other things that you perhaps need to do at this stage is to start looking behind the case at a number of other issues. And uh, I'll just run through some of those issues you might need to think about. So first of all, you might need to think of procedural uh, procedural issues. Have there been any procedural errors in the way that the case has been handled to date? Was the member given information that, for instance, they could bring someone with them to any meetings? Um, was the member advised of the process? Have they had the relevant letters, the relevant dates? Have they been given enough time to procure the case? Do you need additional time? And if you do, again, referring back to what we mentioned in the first podcast, the ACAS Code of Practice uh, suggests that you can delay the case with the authority of the member uh, by a reasonable period of time. And that's defined by ACAS as a period would be reasonable if it were five working days. That doesn't mean you're stuck to five working days. If it means you have to have to delay it for six or seven days, that's totally reasonable as well. Uh, but obviously you should have it at the earliest possible opportunity. It's always good to get cases dealt with swiftly as long as you've got the evidence that you require to deal with the case and you've spent the time you require with the member to discuss the case and prepare them for it. So you're going to be looking at procedural issues and procedural potential errors. You're also going to be looking at policy issues. So what's the policies of the organisation on this? Have they got, for instance, if it comes into it, uh, have they got a bullying harassment policy, a dignity at work policy? Do these impact on your case at all? Do any of, does any aspect of your case connect to a question of parity of treatment or equality? If you've got something around equality, then perhaps you can look at which strand of equality you can hang your hat on. So is it, has it got an aspect which could relate to gender, to race, to disability, to sexuality, sexual orientation, uh, to religion and belief? 
you know, have a look through all of those, all of those strands and start to identify whether there is any potential uh, quality aspect to it. Very important in a case that you raise any potential equality issues as early as possible, any issues as early as possible that you might want to rely on later on in the case. It's very difficult as you progress through a case, and especially if you get outside of the organisation, to then raise something that you've not raised previously. Because remember, every layer of management, and especially layers in a legal sense outside of the, uh, of the employment, uh, such as uh, tribunals, will really be looking at the decisions that were made and the evidence that was presented before those decision makers and whether that decision was, was right on the evidence provided, they won't necessarily be able to then take into account uh, further aspects of the case that haven't even been raised with those decision makers at an earlier stage. Because remember, they're concentrating on the decision that was made. So it's very important to raise things when then uh, when they arise even if it's not 100 percent, if it's just a potential aspect of equality that's quite useful to uh, to raise uh, it's always useful as well to throw policy of an organization back at them so get the actual words of the policy if um, if they're relevant around things like dignity at work and then you can feed those back and argue in the case whether the employer feels that that policy has been met by the management or their agents. So in other words, the employer and their agents, the term I use to refer to um, managers and individuals who played a part in the case of the employer and their agents, because they're only acting as agents of the employer. Okay, so process issues. Many, all, all systems have processes. So in other words, there's a process of discipline, there's a process of grievance. Have those processes been followed appropriately? If there were warnings given previously, if you picked a case up halfway through, um, and say for instance there was an improvement warning that had to be uh, dealt with within a certain period of time, or an appraisal which should have really had an appraisal review at six months and that was missed, then those are relevant to the fact that process has been missed by the employer and you want to find out the facts around those so that you can raise those within your submission to the employer. I'm using that term submission. I'll come back to it in the next episode of the podcast. Um, I use it as quite a formal, a formal terminology, but really a submission can be something that you say as well as something you produce in writing. So I'm not suggesting we need to write legal submissions on these things. That brings me to the next point, which is legal matters, because there could be legal issues within this case and you need to explore those. For a rep, you might have access to things like the Labour Research Department, books on different aspects of employment law. And it's worth looking through those just to see what current case law is around these issues. Um, you might want to maybe do a little bit of research around this. Uh, it's well worth just looking through Unite's uh, Codes of Practice and Guides. Uh, there's loads of stuff on the Unite website. But also, as I say, you've got ACAS, the ACAS website to look at as well. Uh, you've also got, obviously, the law itself, if you think that's being breached. And, of course, you've always got recourse to an officer uh, and via the officer to uh, the legal team, the legal experts. 
on these matters. Uh, specific case issues. So there could be substantive issues of the case that you need to examine. So whether other people who witness these events or incidents, um, are we likely to be able to get some corroborative evidence which will be supportive of our member, etc. Um, Parasite treatments we mentioned around equality, but it could also just be the way in which someone's being treated as opposed to the way which people are normally treated with no equality, particular equality strand um, being breached. And that's still worthwhile thinking about how we raise that. Now, it's not about saying you don't ever go in and say, oh, well, you know, Johnny did this uh, and he wasn't, he wasn't sacked, but here you've got Jane in front of you and you're trying to sack her. It's not about what Johnny did or didn't do. It's actually very much around if you've got an understanding that in general cases of this magnitude are dealt with in one way, but your member seems to be treated less favourably than that, then you raise it as a, as a generic point around the fact that you're now being treated less favourably than the majority of people in these circumstances who have had cases of this particular type or magnitude. Just be careful with that one because, as I say, it's not about trying to identify other people and bring them down with you. It's always about trying to raise people up to a better standard, if you like. Uh, underlying issues at work or domestic, that's very important for you to explore in between these uh, these periods of time. And it may need to, that, that you may need to contact the member or seek further information or evidence of the member to support any issues that have been identified there. Um, underlying issues at work can sometimes be cases of bullying and harassment or or maybe just underlying ways in which that work has been treated, not, not given work or given too much work, more work than other colleagues, etc. Um, in terms of domestic, obviously that information primarily comes from your member, but if they're going through any issues at home, which will significantly impact on their ability to perform in the workplace, that would be um, potentially something you could develop into the case. Illness and disability issues. This is a very big one, a very important one. There could be an illness or disability aspect to the case. And illness itself, to think about that, um, let's get some evidence. So that's about getting the member to maybe get a, a note, a letter or a certificate off the doctor to show this illness. Um, also, if it is uh, in terms of a more serious issue, a disability issue, then it's getting some evidence that it is a disability. And remember, for a disability... We have to fit some criteria, and the criteria is in the appendix of the um, disability. Well, it was the Disability Discrimination Act 1995, which was then brought into the Single Equality Act 2010. Um, and look at the Single Equality Act. The Single Equality Act in the appendix has details of what a disability is. Now, it isn't a non? It isn't an exhaustive list of 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 things that people may suffer from. It's the way in which those things they suffer from impact on them in a day-to-day -day example. So, for instance, if you suffered from um, epilepsy, some people may have very mild forms of epilepsy and it wouldn't really impact on them or it may be that it impacts slightly or other people it'll be more severe. Uh, some people 
that can change over a period of time because of changes in medication or just getting used to medication and needing to re-medicate, to, re, to be reassessed for new medication or other forms of, um, of medical intervention. Asthma is another good example of that. Where it's very mildest, it can be very easily controlled and is at its extreme, it could re- require ventilation. So um, looking at how the nature of the illness impacts on day-to-day activities, things like how they get up in the morning, um, how they deal with the getting dressed and getting out of bed and getting up and down stairs, sitting or standing for periods of time, uh, being able to mobilise, being able to get out and about, all that kind of stuff is relevant. Um, if you've got someone with Crohn's disease, IBS, it's one of those conditions, it could be that they fit into disability under that criteria because it could mean that they have to adapt their lives quite significantly, especially at the extremes of those conditions, to be able to manage their condition. But at the, at the other end of the condition, it could be that they manage absolutely fine day to day, except when they're having particular flare-ups. Mental health can also come into this, so it's always worth understanding and getting a, a picture of the mental health condition they may be suffering from. Um, that can be helped by medical evidence, again, to substantiate the argument you're making in this case. Um, one of the things I would say about medical evidence, and it's very important, I think, uh, to recognise that you want to see that medical evidence you want to, if you, you're obtaining if you're obtaining medical evidence, have a look at it, go through it, make sure it's positive in terms of the case that you're progressing. And the reason I'd say this is that I dealt with a case years ago, uh, working for solicitors, where some medical evidence had been given in by another trade union, um, and the medical evidence within the within the letter from the doctor actually said this person is not disabled under what was then the Disability Discrimination Act. Now, um, that was a difficult one to get over, and in fact, that had resulted in them being dismissed uh, at appeal, at an appeal tribunal. The only way we overcame that was to prove they were disabled under the DDA, and the way we did that was to point out to the tribunal that it isn't a medical decision whether someone is disabled under the DDA, it's a legal, it's a legal opinion. And the legal opinion takes into account all the aspects of the medical condition that's presented to them by doctors, consultants, etc. But they then make a legal judgment as to whether that person is impacted uh, adversely for a long period of time. And it's an ongoing situation which actually, um, which actually comes under that remit uh, within, within what's now the appendix of the SEA on uh, disability. So it's very important if you are going to present evidence that it says the right stuff. You don't want to have put something in which contradicts what you're actually saying. I would just perhaps not submit such evidence in those kind of cases. Any other um, behavioural issues with, with anyone that might um, be relevant. So, for instance, there might be previous behavioural issues with this individual or with the protagonist that you might need to be aware of. If you are aware of, you might need to see how that features in your case. Um, one of the things that you often do when you're building a case, and this will come into the next stage of the submission, is to think about how you can boost up that individual. 
So in other words, you're not just, it's not just about the issue, it's about the individual themselves. So if you've got someone who has worked, say for instance, for 10 years for an organisation, has always turned up on work, for work on time, has hardly ever had time off sick, has never had any previous disciplinaries, then when you're presenting a case to them, no matter what they've done, you've got quite a strong argument to say this is a, a once-in-a-lifetime blip. It's, a, it's something which is not in their normal pattern. They're a very good worker who puts the hours in, puts the effort in, turns up for work on time and all this. That's about starting to build them up as a character and it should be done within, um, within the case that you present to the employer where you can do it. But make sure that you're on solid ground. Don't turn around and say, this is someone who's a model employee, only for the employer to say, well, actually, in reality, they've never been on time for work in the last six months. That doesn't necessarily play out too well, and it may, may impact your case adversely. So many cases are, are won as a result, uh, rather than the case itself, the substantive issue, but as a result of the employer or managers, supervisors, team leaders, failing to, failing to follow procedures, policies or processes. So that's essential in all this. Remember, coming back to that point, make sure that everything that should have been done in this case and the way it's been progressed has been progressed in the way it should have been. It's, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's important for, for our representatives, our shop stewards, to know the law and all of that stuff. The more important thing for me is that our representatives understand the rules and regulations, the policies and procedures of their employers, because that's where things are taken over and above the law, because they can't do anything that's below the law, but they can set in place procedures and policies which are better than the standards that law insists that they provide. If they're not meeting those standards, those enhanced standards, even though they've set them, then again, that can give us a really good position uh, in any case that we take forward. Also about yourselves, never think that you're coming to this situation from any kind of a lower position than the employer. You're there as a representative of these workers, these members that you're representing. And as such, you're a professional in what you do. You're trained and you are being trained in how to actually handle these cases, as well as uh, the HR team or the managers concerned might have been trained themselves in these matters. But in many instances, a good representative will know a lot more about policy, procedure and process than the managers involved in the case. Not necessarily than the HR people, but than the managers involved in the case. Um, we should never be just assuming that what the management have said is correct. Always check everything. Always go through everything with a fine-tooth comb and ensure that what they're saying is, is actually correct. It's actually correct. Okay, so um, I think we'll leave this particular podcast episode at this stage. I think we've raised quite a few things to think about there. The next stage we're going to move on to in the next episode is the creation of a submission itself.